Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, if your spouse is terminally ill and near death in hospice, is it truly a compassionate thing to try and choke the spouse to put them out of their misery? It sounds more violent than compassionate. We all want to go peacefully, but is this the best way? Well, a Utah man is charged with attempted murder for allegedly trying to choke his dying wife. Police say he did it in front of her adult son who was at her bedside. The woman died the next day. What do you think? But first, there's a plea deal in a high-profile felony child abuse case where the mother was a parenting influencer and podcaster. The mother of six, who became famous for her parenting show on YouTube, is pleaded guilty to four counts of child abuse. The state dropped the other two charges as part of this deal. Now, you may recall all of this because we've been covering it here on the podcast. And you probably also remember that her 12-year-old child ran out of the house to a neighbor's asking for food and help. The child said that he had been tied up and malnourished. As part of this plea deal, the mother is now claiming that her podcast partner is the one who really brainwashed her. What do you believe? We are recording this on Wednesday, December 20th of 2023. Our guest today is Gerald Griggs, a criminal defense and civil rights attorney based in Atlanta. Gerald is a dear friend of the show, a fierce advocate for justice for everyone Gerald, it's such a pleasure to have you back. You're so busy. We're thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled to be here with you, Anna. It's great to be on the platform and just looking forward to diving into the cases. Excellent. Excellent. Your take is always very interesting. And at the heart of everything you do is compassion, compassion for everyone. Okay. So both of our cases this week are out of Utah and they are complicated really by what I would call religious and moral beliefs surrounding how you parent, and your right to die. So, so they're very complicated because they're nuanced. And they and both cases, though, cross over into the criminal world. So that kind of changes everything. You can believe whatever you want, but if it's against the law, uh, you know, usually that's the superseding thing unless it's a, a religious thing. What, what do you think, Gerald? Absolutely. You know, there's a separation of church and state, but when it comes to something that's been criminalized by the legislature and, and ultimately becomes law, then there's where you have to uh, make sure that your beliefs don't run afoul of what the law actually says. So it's it's interesting take on all these cases. Um, but, you know, in most states, you know, these these uh, offenses and actions would be illegal. And then that's where you come into contact with the criminal justice system. Yeah. Absolutely. They, they, they've both crossed over here. Our first case is out of Ivan's, Utah, where a parenting podcaster has pleaded guilty to child abuse. Again, this is someone who sat there on YouTube and on her podcast telling people how she parented, how to parent. And here she is accused of child abuse. It's uh, very disturbing on a lot of levels. Um, what's really interesting about this case, Gerald, because we've covered it before, we covered it when she was arrested, is that her parenting style was considered uh, very harsh, 
severe by some. And there was even a, a petition drive that was started online by people who had seen her YouTube show and had a real problem with her style. And they even tried to contact authorities. So it's um, it's almost, and again, she has entered a plea, plea here and things can always change. But it's so interesting when it's literally in your face, Gerald, and it takes this long to get to a criminal case. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people have different parenting styles and a lot of people like to give advice about parenting. But you really should know that in most states, there is a statute that defines what reasonable corporal punishment is and how much uh, you can you can uh, use that reasonable corporal punishment. And in this case, it seems as though law enforcement and the authorities believe she's crossed over the line. And of course, people that are watching her podcast and people that were uh, you know, uh, knew about her platform were concerned as well. And, and so it's going to be interesting to see what the judge does in this case, because depending on the level of severity, um, she could be facing a long uh, period of incarceration. Yes, she could. The accused here is 41-year-old Ruby Frankie, and she was this controversial YouTuber who last August was charged with six counts a felony child abuse after two of her children were found by police in conditions which police described as neglected and abused. She had pleaded guilty. She has now pleaded guilty to four of those counts Two have been dropped as part of this deal. Now, sentencing isn't going to be until 2024. Her attorneys, though, Gerald, are weaving a story, a narrative that they started um, with a statement that was released before she entered the plea and then also some comments that were made in court. And basically, Ruby and her attorneys are now claiming that the podcast partner and business partner, this other woman, is really to blame here for brainwashing Ruby. The former business partner, who is also a therapist, uh, is 54-year-old Jody Hildebrandt, and she's also been charged in this case. How do judges view this um this move, when you as a defendant take responsibility for your actions, you enter a plea that's guilty, uh, you apologize, but then you also do one of these. But really, she made me do it. That's always a difficult road to hope uh, because a judge really wants to see contrition and absolution, which means they want you to admit what you did, not what somebody else may have forced you to do, not what something else that may have caused you to do it. That's all for a trial. That's, you know, that that's not mitigation. Um, that's actually a justification. And so I think that it's a difficult road to go down. And, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, if if we enter a plea, I always advise to my client, you need to be contrite and show your remorse so the judge has mercy on you, not blame somebody else. Because many times the judge will stop you right in your tracks and say, it sounds like you want to have a trial so we can withdraw your plea and you can present that justification to a jury and see what happens. But if you're entering a plea, I want to hear what acts you did, um, your uh, mitigation for those acts, and what you think a, a, a rightful punishment will be. So it's a difficult path to go down, and generally it's not advised to blame somebody else if you've already pled guilty. Yeah, I think, you know, I, what I've been reading on it is that there are two points of view on this one. There's yours, which is kind of how I view it as well. And then there's also the possibility that this is um, – kind of laying the framework saying, but we're going to testify or we're going to work against the other one. But here's the problem about the other one. She's not the parent. So if I'm a prosecutor or I'm the community, you may claim that the other one brainwashed you, influenced you, but you are the parent. It is your responsibility to protect your children at all costs. So Absolutely. And that's how the law looks at it. And also the argument is going to be you actually put yourself out to the public as being a guru who taught people how to parent. So now you're going counter to what you had put out in the public and it, it cuts your credibility in half because 
you know, for all of these years, you were telling people these are the do's and don'ts of parenting. This is how you should or shouldn't parent. But then you're telling us now you were listening to one person and you really weren't an expert. So, again, it, it's a difficult path to go down. If there is some type of cooperation agreement to testify, you need to focus on I'm testifying against this person because of these reasons, not because they caused me to do anything or I was brainwashed. No, they committed a crime and I'm assisting um, the state in being able to prove the crime against that person, which is why I'm even bringing that person up. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Absolutely. And as far as credibility, I would say zero, zero, zero credibility as a parent and anyone who has anything to say about parenting. Oh, it's just so disturbing. In fact, when she was arrested, um, her oldest child you know, made comments on social media. She um, had nothing to do with her mother anymore and was pleased that the authorities had finally taken action. Her own sisters, the aunts of these children, said the same thing on social media. So clearly there were people related to her who thought that she was completely off. And that's putting it mildly when you're accused of child abuse. That's mild. Ruby Frankie became famous from her YouTube vlog, Eight Passengers. She started the vlog in 2015, and it was really a peek into how she lived her life. Eight Passengers had nearly 2.3 million followers, so a lot of followers, subscribers on YouTube. The show documented the life of Ruby and her husband, Kevin, and their six children and their life, how they lived it, and the challenges that they faced. Now, it was this controversial, it was really a controversial YouTube show, and it was taken down earlier this year because there was a lot of criticism about how Ruby parented and the practices that um, she was telling others to follow. So she would do things like take away meals from children to get them to behave. It was part of the punishment. And like I said, there were subscribers who were very upset, viewers who started this online petition against her. So, um, that's that part of this. Now, the other component, because honestly, it it is related, I believe, to this case and to the arguments that are being made here about who was in control, who wasn't, and you know, all this bad judgment at the very minimum here. Ruby's business partner, Jody Hildebrandt, is a licensed clinical mental health counselor based in Ivins, Utah. Now, her license is currently suspended. She is the founder of a self-help company called Connections, whose mission statement is to reportedly treat those lost and stranded in the darkness of distortion. Okay, probably how many people do feel when they get to therapy. However, Connections has been criticized by former clients for using shame-based learning treatments. I mean, really, you really need to feel worse about yourself when you're struggling? Really? How's that helpful? What what book did you find that in? What textbook? So um, also some clients have said it goes beyond that, that it goes towards racism and homophobia. And so here's the thing, how these two came together. You have um, Ruby, the mom, the, the parenting influencer, joins Jody on connections. This is after their vlog is taken down, you know, with the family thing. And they start this podcast calls called Moms of Truth. Well, they are living their moment of truth right now in the criminal justice system, aren't they? It is their day to shine. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes life imitates art. When the vlog was initially taken down, they should have learned there was an issue. But no, they doubled down. Right. They doubled down. It is so disturbing. So there's a little bit um, here that's always been a little bit murky to me because at the time that they were arrested and the child escaped the house, Ruby, the parenting influencer, had moved in with Jody, the business partner, and she had taken some of her children with her. And so everyone kept asking, like, where's the husband? Because Kevin was part of the YouTube show. And he wasn't around and she had some, but not all of her kids living with her and the business partner. It's all very confusing. Well, it turns out that Ruby and her husband had separated for almost a year 
And the husband is saying that that separation was either uh, arranged, manipulated, supported by the business partner. Okay, so it's all very, very, very confusing here. So he was not in the picture at the time that the mom was arrested and the business partner was arrested and the child was found. I want to get to that day. You know, we covered this on the podcast before, but I want to play it for you again because the 911 call from the neighbor is very distressing. It's very disturbing, but it's also very telling. And and Gerald, I always say this about 911 calls. The 911 call is the very first of the police reports ever. It is the one that is in real time telling you what's going on. And so I always find it extremely valuable. Absolutely. It gives you a snapshot in time of what's actually happening. You can generally hear uh, from the background. You can hear from the caller what's happening, what they're perceiving. So it's very crucial to the start of any case. So it was August 30th of this year, 2023, and a neighbor calls 911 to report that Ruby's emaciated 12-year-old son had knocked on the door asking for help. The child had escaped from a window at Jody Hildebrandt's house. The boy said that he wanted food and water. He was hungry and he was thirsty. And and according to the neighbor, the child's condition was so severe that the neighbor was in tears as he called 911. Oh, it's so upsetting. And then police went to the house because of this 911 call and they find the little boy's 10-year-old sister also in a similar physical condition and also malnourished. Police believe that the children had been abused because they had uh, marks on their wrists as if they had been tied up. And so the children were taken to the hospital and they stayed there for a while because of their condition. Now, I want you to listen to this 911 call from the neighbor with all of that background that I gave you. He has duct tape around each ankle. Yeah, there's sores around them. Oh, and he has them around his ankles. I mean, his wrists as well. Okay, this boy has been... This kid has obviously been... I think he's been... He's been detained. He's been... He's obviously covered in wounds. He says he... uh, What's happened to him is his fault. You know, Gerald, when someone starts crying to dispatch, as they are describing the condition of this child they don't know that has come to them for help, I think that says a lot. It absolutely says a lot. Anytime that uh, an adult would be moved to tears at the mere sight of a child tells you the type of distress uh, that the child is in and that it's causing an emotional reaction from an adult because this should not be happening. Under no circumstances, under no circumstances. And how much more egregious is it when you see it coming allegedly at the hands of someone purported telling the world that they are an expert on how to parent? Yeah. That makes it even more egregious because, you know, the one true blessing that we have in this world is the ability to to give life to another uh, individual and then care for that person until they are grown up. And then for somebody to hold themselves out as an expert to teach others how to do that most precious job and then to fail uh, that very virtue to that child and then other adults having to see it, it's it's just just horrendous. Yeah, and that's why I have... Uh, consider this case one that's so important that does need to be discussed. It really does, because we try and cover cases about our most vulnerable children, people with special needs, the elderly, the infirmed, and animals, and animals, you know? Okay, so these charges uh, represent three forms of child abuse against the two kids. Just so you could understand, it's not like the child abuse charges were brought against all of the children. Only the two um, 
whom were hospitalized. And the prosecutors described the abuse this way, physical injuries or torture, starvation or malnutrition that jeopardizes life and severe emotional harm. So here's how the counts come come down. For each count of felony child abuse, it carries a possibility of one to 15 years in prison with a fine of up to $10,000. So at the very first hearing, the judge denied any bail bond for either of these two women. They have been sitting behind bars since their arrest in August. Now, Gerald, um, I understand that in some ways this feels almost like swift justice for us because rarely do we in in just in the course of a few months, cover the arrest of a case, a plea deal, even though we're not at sentencing, that's still a few months off. Uh, I know to avoid a trial, but should we feel that justice is going to be served here? I guess we won't really know until we hear what the sentence is. Yeah, you really won't know until the sentence is heard. But for a judge to rule um, no bond in a situation like this, where you have two individuals who obviously have no prior criminal history, that shows you um, the level of criminality that is possible here. Now that they pled guilty, um, they will need sufficient mitigation to avoid substantial jail time. Because anytime a judge says, you know, you're presumed innocent, but these are some really horrific charges and I'm not going to grant you bond because you are a threat to the community and you possibly are a threat to witnesses and the and uh, the uh, fair administration of justice, that says a lot. So, um for a case to move this fast from arrest uh, to sentencing uh, says the strength of the state's case, because typically the defense wants to draw it out, wants to do their own investigation, wants to provide mitigation, possibly wants to have a trial. This is moving very, very swiftly. What's also interesting here is that a few months after the arrest, so this would be now November 29th, Kevin, the husband from that YouTube show has filed for divorce. So that's something else that's moving in the system. But um, apparently the petition for divorce in Utah is sealed. So we cannot get a lot of information from that. Like sometimes you do, even sometimes in a criminal case, you'll actually get information and background on the family through family court, but not in this case. One of the things um, that is public as far as these filings is that the two parties have agreed not to say anything negative about the other in front of the children during this process. Um, excuse me, does anybody even have to say anything? It's already in the public record, all of the negative stuff about this mother. I mean, come on. I just, I'm sure these, uh, unless these children were denied an education, it's all out there. I mean, I, I, I don't, how do you mitigate that as the father? Oh, your mother didn't mean it? Your mother didn't mean to starve you? Oh, your mother didn't mean to um, tie you up? No. Yeah, it just sounds like this is a very messy divorce. So this week on Monday, December 18th, Ruby pleaded guilty to four counts of aggravated child abuse. And she said, quote, with the deepest regret and sorrow for my family and my children. Okay, I suppose that's a step forward. Um, yeah. Ruby, I'm sorry if I don't have a lot of compassion in this case. Honestly, I have zero compassion for this person. Ruby will be subject um, to, of course, the sentencing guidelines of felony child abuse, which we've gone through, could be anywhere between four years to 60 years in total. Uh, we're told that prosecutors are recommending that her, her sentence be served consecutively on each count. That says a lot. Anytime a prosecutor wants each count to stand on its own and you'd be punished by each count, that just shows you how egregious the allegations are that have now, someone has now pled guilty to. Um, so the prosecution is about to ask for a very hard, harsh sentence. And if there's not a lot of mitigation uh, typically, the judge goes along with what the prosecution is asking for. And in a statement filed in support of her plea, this is when Ruby um, had to own up 
to what she did. As you said a little while ago, Gerald, that as part of a plea deal, as part of, you know, trying to get mercy from the court, you have to admit to the horrible things that you did. And so in this filing this week as part of her plea deal, she detailed the escalating torture of her two young children. I'm sickened just repeating this. This is why I say to you, I have no compassion for this person. Both children were initially forced to perform physical acts, like things like wall sits, heavy carrying of boxes up and down stairs, working outside. I mean, there's, there is a big difference between a chore, taking out the trash, carrying a box, helping your parents, and doing it repeatedly as your punishment. Ruby admitted that both children were forced to perform outdoor labor without shoes. They did this in direct sunlight in the summer heat for days. As a result, the children suffered severe sunburns and blisters on their skin. Again, I'm ill. During these outdoor punishments, both children, they were denied food and water, and they received additional punishment if they secretly tried to get a sip of water. I'm sickened by this. No mercy on this woman. No mercy. And it could have been worse. This is the shocking part. As horrible as this is, we have we have reported on far worse child abuse. But at the end of the day, it is abuse. And no level of it or measurement of it should be acceptable. And I mean, it's one thing to punish your child. It's, it's one thing to try to instill in them discipline. Um, but when you get to the point where you are physically abusing them, I mean, severe sunburns, um, that means they had to be outside for a prolonged period of time without the adequate clothing and protection and without sunscreen and, you know, to get severe. It's one, it, you know, one thing to get a sunburn, but severe sunburn. And then to be outside doing um, heavy labor without shoes, um, I, I, don't, I don't see a reason why a parent would do that. And then to take away you know, food and sustenance and water while doing these things over a prolonged period of time. You know, some of us grew up in, you know, this difficult uh, parental situations where, you know, in today's time, you might consider it being abused. Uh, but this, I, I don't see the, the rationale for any of this, you know. And so, I, I, like you said, I don't really have any uh, remorse uh, for someone who would s subject their child to severe uh, sunburn and have them doing manual heavy labor with no shoes on. I mean, all kinds of things could have happened uh, that could have seriously injured the child. I think what is complicated about this case is that generally, you know, with a lot of child abuse, there is you know, the striking of the individual, um, the harming, you know, the, the physical contact that way. But her abuse here, and this is her own description of what the abuse was. Her abuse is so twisted because she complicates it with chores and manual labor. And, and rather than striking the child, she forces the child into these impossible situations in which harm will come to them, but their little brains, you know, may not be able, you know, if someone hits you, that hurts and that's wrong. Children know that. But if you're out there, you know, working in the garden or whatever it is that you're doing, you don't have shoes on, you're blistering from the sun. Is it clear to you as a child in the moment that in your 10 and your 12 years old that you are being abused? Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's mentally demeaning as well, because you, in some sense, as a child would think, okay, I did something wrong, so I have to do these chores, but these chores are inflicting such substantial pain on me 
but I can't really comprehend why I'm having to do it repeatedly. So I can see that because, I mean, even as an adult, you know, some of the things that we have to do, you understand why we have to do them, but it still kind of messes with you cognitively. But for this to be a punishment, which is titled a chore that is, you know, physically and adversely affecting me, it's also messing with me mentally because my parent knows that I'm not of the age to fully understand what is happening and they are manipulating uh, my situation repeatedly for their own um, sick um, form of, of punishment. Diabolical, diabolical, without question. So in addition to the forced labor and the starvation, Ruby also admitted in court to additional torture that was endured by her son. She claimed that she restrained the child and then kicked him while she had boots on. She also confessed that she had forced forced the boy's head underwater and that she had smothered him with her hands, suffocating him as even more punishment. So as you see, it's escalating. And, and I mean, when you're waterboarding your child or simulating drowning of your child, that, I mean, it, in no sense of the imagination is that any form of suitable punishment for anything. I mean, even even in our military, we ban the use of such torture devices, but we are doing it to your child. So, yeah, there's no reason uh, to have remorse. And again, if she's going to actually say, that the co-defendant was the reason why she engaged in such behavior. Uh, she's going to face an uphill battle uh, with the judge. What she needs to do is have a true trained psychologist talk about maybe other issues of trauma she has herself uh, has dealt with, which caused the, the, uh, um, the, the pattern of abuse that the judge needs to break this cycle of violence that's happened to the entire family, not blaming it on, you know, Somebody I, you know, I, I was in a business relationship that's a, that's a counselor taught me this. This this seems to be ingrained in a culture that's passed down. Ruby admitted that the punishments were part of indoctrination of her children, that she was convinced that they were evil and possessed. Children are not evil. They're the most innocent. And, and that's the problem that you see in a lot of these cases when there's a a mixing of people's um, belief systems as opposed to what the law holds as criminal. You know, yes, some people believe that, you know, there's a right to corporal punishment, um, but the law says it has to be reasonable corporal punishment that fits the standards of the community. I can think of no community in the United States where holding your son's head underwater is reasonable. And I don't think a jury would see that as well. And I know a judge would. What pained me so when we first reported this is that the little boy told the neighbor and the police that his condition, as he was, was all his fault, that it was all his fault. And now in court, we have further evidence of where that comes from. So she convinced her children that they were evil and that they were possessed. And Ruby, she said this in court, told her children that all this punishment that she inflicted on them, that they were acts of love necessitated by the children's need to repent. She had convinced them it was love. She had convinced them it was their own fault. And that little boy completely believed it yeah it oh. sounds like um spiritual indoctrination it sounds like cult-like behavior yeah. and and the children should realize that love should not hurt uh yeah. and that you know anytime a parent is trying to redirect your actions uh it's because of true morality but it's not to be physical abuse um and then, you know, you hit it's sort of like that, that gaslighting. I hit you because you did something. No, you are inflicting pain in pain. It, it does not help somebody learn to not do something, which is why even in our criminal justice system, there's not only, you know, uh, punishment, but there's rehabilitation. We're trying to rehabilitate uh, activity. So that's why 
you know, in, in, in the court system, you don't just inflict corporal punishment on individuals like like whipping them or like like hanging them or, or th- things like that, because that doesn't redirect um, behavior. What redirects behavior is a conversation with consequences uh, that are narrowly tailored to achieve a goal of redirecting activity. Oh, well, Ruby has pleaded guilty to these four charges. And again, her lawyers blaming everything on the business partner. In fact, as part of the statement, they claim um, that Jody, the business partner, took advantage of Ruby. Oh, please. I mean, do you, it's almost as if there's a pecking order based on, on what they're on their own claims, that you have the business partner, Jody, manipulating and isolating Ruby, who then turns around and, and hurts her children. Really? This woman is that powerful? Really? Yeah, I, I don't think the judge is going to buy that. Um, and I mean, what is, you know, the interest of the business partner in you abusing your child? What is the interest? So I think that they're going to have to redirect their strategy and truly show contrition of the acts that were perpetrated on these innocent children, especially the psychological damage. You know, the physical damage over time will heal, but the psychological damage that was done by a mother doing these things to their to her children um, has to be mitigated again. So if I'm her lawyer, I start talking about I'm truly ashamed of the pain and trauma I've inflicted on my children. And I want to work to undo that. And that will be my goal after I serve my prison sentence. Hmm. It's just, you know, I'm thinking of them in the sun, you know, literally baking and blistering under the sun and how, you know, so many parents are constantly like lathering their children, right? Lathering them with sunscreen and hats and umbrellas. And, you know, so many parents are so obsessive about this because we know the links between severe sun exposure and cancer later on in life. Yes. And that was the first thing that came to my mind, because if you have a severe severe sun damage to the skin. There's a causal connection between melanomas and other forms of cancer later on in life. So the damage that was being done to these children will potentially be lifelong damage, both physically and mentally. Mm. Well, Ruby's day in court for sentencing is February 20th of 2024. We, of course, are going to be watching that. And we're hoping that she gets the book thrown at her. Jody is scheduled to have her appearance in court next week, December 27th. Um, some of her former clients have told NBC that she frequently diagnosed all of them with the same problem. Everyone had porn addiction. That was the problem for everyone, the, the basic problem. And that um, she's accused of doing more damage than than helping through her counseling practice. Her license has been suspended, not that she could do anything from behind bars right now. And um, just as a footnote here, back in 2012, the state of Utah put her on an 18-month probation because of her unprofessional conduct. So no, it's not new behaviors here, not new behaviors. So we'll see what happens to Jody, and I hope both of them spend an awful long time behind bars selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is here to help you grow whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person pos system wherever and whatever you're selling shopify has got you covered shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 15 percent better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there 
to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next case is also out of Utah, specifically Leverkin. This is where a man is charged with attempted murder after allegedly choking his terminally ill wife in order, he said, to release her from the pain of her cancer. The accused here is 45-year-old Dwayne McCullough, who has been charged with attempted murder after allegedly trying to choke his wife, Arenda Lee McCullough, who was 47 when she died. Now, this alleged choking incident happened while she was in hospice already. And it happened on December 20th of 21. She died the next day. Authorities say that Dwayne was attempting to end his wife's suffering before he was pulled off of his wife by the woman's own son. There were something like six family members in the home that day. And, um, you know, they, it became like a struggle to keep him off of her. Now, here's the thing, Gerald. At first, I thought to myself, wow, this is going to be one of those complicated cases where someone is trying to help someone who's terminally ill and suffering to gracefully, peacefully exit. Until you hear the part about he tried to choke her. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, oh, that sounds like incredibly violent and painful. Like that doesn't sound to me like dying with dignity with my with my freedom and decision to do that. What do you think? Yeah, I I think that, you know, from the outset, it, it sounded like you know, as the story was framed initially, that it was some type of euthanasia, some type of mercy, um, mercy killing to put somebody out of their misery. Um, But, you know, typically that's done with some type of medicine that's done with just assisting the person. It's not done with trying to choke the life out of them. So and, and then for a family member having to intercede and pull you off of the individual as you're violently choking them to death, uh, that counts that, that cuts counter to some type of loving and and uh, a merciful, uh, graceful, you know, re- returning that person to a sense of peace as they transition on to the next life. So uh, it's it's very difficult to, to, to think that there is a loving spouse that would try to choke the life out of their spouse in some type of mercy killing. Yeah. That is the part that I'm really having trouble here because, I mean, I I understand the component of of wanting to end someone's suffering. I understand that part of the component, but the way that you carry it out is such a violent manner. And look, I know there are people who believe even assisting someone through euthanasia is violent. I understand that. and, And I'm not discounting that by any means, Um, but it, it, it's it's the manner feels very physical and violent to me. So um, here's a little bit more background on the case, and then y'all can weigh in on YouTube on what you think here. So Arenda had uh, relocated to Southern Utah in 2005. She had moved from upstate New York with her only son, Anthony Michael Ryder. Now, according to Anthony, um, this move was all part of a reset and a restart because she was leaving an abusive relationship behind. So, you know, when you put this into perspective, you could see why the son later on, when we get to his description of, she didn't have a lot of movement available to her left in her body, but with her eyes, she could Mm -hmm. scream and how jarring and frightening it was to her as she was being choked. So according to Anthony, 
Um, she did really well. Both of them did really well when they moved to Utah and she was a volunteer at a rehab center for troubled youth. She was an avid mountain biker. And in January of 2020, this single mother marries Dwayne McCullough. So she finds love later on in life. Now here's the sad, sad part of this. Later that year, after she marries, she finds out she's diagnosed with breast cancer. You know, she didn't have a long time at joy here. And so, but despite the diagnosis, she carried on and she was actually, you know, taking all these treatments, doing everything she could, um, not not accepting the role of victim. She was also helping other women with cancer. And then in 2021, the diagnosis changed. It was terminal. The breast cancer had spread to her brain, her neck, her lungs, her liver. She was dying. So there was a GoFundMe account that was created by her son because one of the things they wanted to do because the cancer had spread so far um, and she was losing the ability of movement um, before entering hospice, they, they wanted to see if they could move her to Oregon because Oregon has the Death with Dignity Act where you are allowed to self-administer your own death, your own euthanasia. And so that they were trying to do that, but they weren't able to raise the money to move her and get that set up. And so she ended up going into hospice there in Utah. So she's in her final days and she has truly worsened here. And this is when, um, remember we talked about the choking part of this. And here's what's important, again, for perspective, everyone. She had received a lot of radiation to try and attack the cancer, which had spread everywhere. But the radiation had caused severe burns, so there were blisters and sores in her throat, which made eating very difficult for her. Um, she could have nutritional shakes. So the reason I want us to think about that, when we think about what it is to compassionately help someone leave this world, is choking, choking someone. I know it's just an allegation, but it's choking someone it just sounds so painful to me, given her state. Absolutely. I mean, given the physical um, trauma her body had suffered fighting the cancer uh, and then um, the injuries that were there, if you choke somebody, that's further um, exacerbating the pain. And as somebody who ha has seen somebody in hospice because of throat cancer, um, I could not imagine um, how insensitive it would be to try to assist them in transitioning by choking them to death. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, I, I understand some people believe that you should be able to die with dignity and some states allow uh, for assisted suicide. Um, but I think that it's very difficult to convince anyone that, a person who has blisters in their throat who cannot really eat, um, you would choke them to death and that would be a peaceful way to transition. Yeah. So around 11 o'clock on that evening of the assault, the attempted murder, according to the police, December 20th, 2021, Dwayne placed his hands on his wife's neck and began choking her. Now, the son, Anthony, was in the room and he was caught off guard. He said that initially he wasn't sure what was going on. He thought maybe his stepfather was caressing her, you know, trying to soothe her and any pain maybe by massaging. But then he said, all of a sudden, he realized what the man was doing was choking his mother. And um, he said that he was pushing so hard on her that it was his way of making this whole thing pass quicker. Um, Anthony says um, that these actions did not ease his mother's suffering in any way. He says he saw his mother's eyes snap open after the choking began and that her expression immediately showed she was confused and she was afraid. So this is from the son's perspective. He says he struggled with the stepfather to get him off of his mother. 
Um, Dwayne reportedly refused to stop. Um, he continued. That's when other families had to intervene. As I said, it took 20 minutes to stop him. So obviously it didn't ease her suffering. But here's what's very interesting. She passed the next night. So as a criminal defense attorney, not just as a compassionate human being, if she dies the next night, does that indicate that she was near death or that this action could have actually accelerated her death? I think that's going to be the, the essence of this case. I mean, the argument can be made uh, that there's a proximate cause to her death uh, by the choking, which exacerbated her condition that ultimately caused her death. Now, as a criminal defense attorney, your argument for your client against this, that charge is she was already terminal and I didn't exacerbate her death. Uh, and then you bring experts in to say her condition and everything. But, you know, going back to being a compassionate person, you really didn't have to do any of that behavior because it seems as though she was so near death already that it was only a matter of days anyway. But yes, legally, there's an argument that can be made that you sped up um, the death. Uh, so it, it's an interesting um, novel criminal issue. Uh, but as a compassionate individual, it, it should never have happened. No, absolutely not. So on December 21st, the following day at 4.20 a.m., Arenda died. She died of terminal breast cancer. Now, her son, Anthony, um, in the following year, so remember, this was around the holidays. It was literally around this time right now. Today's the 20th. She died on the 21st. Um, he filed a police report in 2022, and... Uh, police did interview the husband, and according to authorities, um, he said he did do it. And according to authorities, he allegedly said, and he would do it again because he loved his wife. Ooh, I saw your eyes right there. As a criminal defense attorney, you're like, oh, no, no, you didn't. Yeah, you don't make those type of statements. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you make the statement, yes, I did it. And it was, you know, euthanasia or it was a mercy issue, depending on the state you're in. Um, but you don't double down and say, and I would have done it again, because that just gives the prosecutor that closing argument. And of course, it gives the, the police the probable cause to arrest you. But um, yeah, no criminal defense attorney wants to hear those type of statements coming from your client. And nobody should make those statements. You may believe that in your mind, but you keep that in your mind. Well, what's interesting here, and we don't have a clear answer for anyone. We really don't. And until this case progresses, we may this part of it may not be revealed. But many people are wondering, what took so long? Okay, she did pass toward the end of 21. The son filed the complaint in 22, but it really wasn't until December 13th of 2023 that he was charged with attempted murder but nonetheless the charges have been filed now and uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how if this goes to trial if it goes to trial how a jury will decide this uh, because it's a first degree attempted murder charge in utah if convicted he could face 15 years to life in prison It'll be very interesting to see how a jury is able to figure this one out. Well, it is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media. And here's our producer, Will Updike. Hey, Will. Hey, how's it going? Good. Hey, how Will. are you, Gerald? Good to see you. Doing, doing great. Good to see you too, brother. All right, so this week we have a case. Uh, I'm calling it the lights are on, but no one is supposed to be home. This one comes out of Plantation, Florida, where it's been revealed that a couple who are renowned in the area for their over-the-top Christmas display have been occupying the home illegally for nearly two decades. So Waters? 
Yes. So waters with Christmas spirit. I love it. <laughs> yes. And I mean, we're talking a massive display, like such a big deal that they got in trouble, like with the city. So we'll get into all that. But allegedly, uh, the suspects here, Kathy Hyatt, who's a realtor in the Plantation, Florida area, and her ex-husband, Mark Hyatt, who actually died back in 2020, have lived in this home for 15 years without a title on the property and allegedly like a forged deed. So the investigation into this whole thing started because of these extravagant displays of the Hyatts. Um, the house, you know, would be littered with lights everywhere. There's the huge figures and ornaments in the lawn. People uh, from around the area called it the Hyatt Extreme Christmas House. Um, and, you know, some people really liked it, but it was kind of a source of consternation for neighbors in the city of Plantation. Um, and it, it is kind of like an upscale neighborhood. You know, it's it's nice houses uh, there in Florida. Um, so things kind of started to fall apart uh, for these alleged squatters when they were going through a divorce in 2017. So even that year, right, they're they're amid a, a contentious divorce uh, and they do the huge the huge light display, uh, but behind closed doors, they're arguing about their assets. They're trying to figure out alimony and child support. And it's discovered that the deed to this house had been faked. So how did they get this house? I'm sure is the question that that everyone is asking. That is also a bit of a complicated story. So the home was originally purchased by Brett Perriman, who was an NFL wide receiver. Uh, he played for the University of Miami. He played for the Dolphins. However, in 2004, he play, he faced foreclosure for failing to pay off the then $400,000 mortgage. So what happens? It's one of those foreclosure situations where an investor buys out the remaining $50,000 on the mortgage. The, this investor changes all the locks. He's planning to flip the home, but doesn't get around to it for a while. Doesn't really do anything. So uh, our couple here, the Hyatts, are looking for a home in Florida and they believe that this place is abandoned. Uh, you know, there's, there's not really anything going on. So Mark Hyatt, the husband here, was actually a mortgage officer at the time. And he uncovered that the NFL player, Brett Perriman, somehow didn't have a valid deed on the house in the first place. So... Uh, Mark then accuses this investor who bought out the foreclosure on the place of squatting. And Mark even calls the police on this investor. The Hyatts have not paid a dime to this point on the house, but the house is now in complete limbo. So allegedly the couple broke into the home, changed all the house, changed all the locks. They throw everything out of the house. So that way the investor uh, that they had accused of squatting couldn't claim he had any sort of possession before the Hyatts had arrived. So not only are they living in this house illegally, they start doing these massive Christmas displays every single year, drawing a lot of attention. <laughs> these were such a big deal, right? These Christmas these Christmas displays, they made national headlines. It became a like a burden for the neighbors because people would drive from all over the place to look at these lights. It was such a problem that the city of Plantation even attempted to sue the Hyatts because of the amount of traffic it was generating in the area. So things have come to a head here recently after uh, an investigation by the Broward County property appraisers discovered the couple had somehow received a homestead exemption, which, you know, it, it keeps your taxes sort of uh, in yeah. line with, you, you know, you're not subject to taxes for insane increases in property value. But the couple now has back taxes totaling $35,000 and it's up <sighs> in the air. They're trying to figure out who legally owns the home. Like who, who does this home actually belong to? And the statute of limitations has now passed. So Kathy Hyatt won't face any criminal charges, but she may have to find a new home for the holidays. Um, wow. So, um, so no criminal charges. Oh, that's insane. You steal, you allegedly yes. steal a home and yet you can't be prosecuted. That's crazy. And it's like, it's such a bizarre thing because I, I'm sure in your mind, it maybe feels like a victimless crime if you're occupying the home, but someone was foreclosed, like nearly foreclosed upon, kicked out of that home. Someone else has put $50,000 into this and you're mm -hmm. just somehow reaping all the benefits. Um, I, I don't really get it. And they're both, both of these people had jobs. Like I said, Kathy, she was a realtor. Uh, Mark was a, you know, he, he, he dealt with mortgages and, uh, and those sorts of transactions. And then later, like what was on the city council, it's, it, it's a whole thing. Um, but anyways, people had a lot to say on this one. Mika K said, if they're squatters, how on earth would they get all those Christmas decorations? 
I'm going to say, if you don't have to pay for a mortgage, I mean, that's that's a couple thousand bucks a month you could put into some Christmas. Some, Got a some lot Christmas of money lights. for lights there. A lot yeah, of money. you can really, uh, yeah, you can really um, stack up. Some people were pretty impressed with this. Melissa W said, pretty well done for some leeches. I'll show a picture uh, to our uh, to our video viewers. If you're listening, I mean, you've seen a massive Christmas display before. You can you can use your imagination. Um, L Jackson said, seems like they're taking pretty good care of the place to me. I, you know, it's it's unclear what the inside was like. I haven't seen any pictures of that, really, just these big displays. But if they're going through that trouble, I I, I would guess the house is an incomplete disrepair. Um, but who knows? Uh, Cassie, a lot of people were actually worried about who was paying the electricity for this. If they're squatting and there's all these lights, like how how is that getting sorted out? Cassie P said electric bill. That'll be ten thousand dollars. Not really <laughs> sure. Yeah, not really sure who's paying that one. Um Allison R., uh, I love their comment. They said, when you're squatting, but decide to make light of the situation, Ooh, um, which, you know, we love a good pun here. We this kind of got me thinking, like, this could be the plot of, you know, Home Alone 7 or whatever. Instead yes. of a, a child left alone, you have a couple squatting in the home, you know, booby trapping the house to stay there for the holidays. Chestnuts are open, uh, roasting over the open fire. It's a whole thing. Robin Hood tale. Um but yeah, I don't know if that's how it's going to shake out in this. So one. I'm curious. I have a question for Gerald. So Gerald, is it at all possible that the football player who originally did own the home but foreclosed because he could no longer pay, it seems to me that that's the last, that and maybe the investor are the last two known potential owners. I know criminally, according to Will, there's not much that can be done. But civilly, I mean, I would think that the football players got, you know, a decent Civil case against somebody? Well, I mean, that there goes back to the first year law school property. And it's a search, <laughs> such thing called adverse possession. And when you hold something out open and notorious for over seven years, you have a claim to possession. So, yes, it would seem that Mr. Perryman would be the best person to be able to make a claim that he owns the property, but for the foreclosure by the lending company. So the lending company may have an interest and then the investor would have an interest, but you'd have to have a uh, action to quiet title. And uh, it would seem uh, that the family that was squatting there has a good argument that we were holding it openly and notorious. The issue is going to be whether or not they got to whatever Florida says is the magic number. In most states, again, it's seven years. You hold it openly and notorious. And they, I think having those massive Christmas lights is open and notorious for a prolonged amount of time. You actually have a claim to possession and ownership. So, Gerald, could these Christmas displays be part of like that whole scheme for the open and notorious thing? Like maybe this was like their plan? A absolutely. And when you said that they were... Uh, real estate agents and potential brokers, I'm sure they knew about this particular uh, common law theory, which many states have now codified. I'm not sure Florida has codified it because I didn't go to law school in Florida, nor did I take the Florida bar. But I know Georgia and I also know Ohio have similar uh, common law statutes that allow for this type of adverse possession. So, you know, there's an issue there. So civilly, there may be a problem as well. Oh, wow. wow. So if they were to sell this house, if the house sells, no, well, the problem is like you have to own it, I guess, to sell it. You have to clear the title. Yeah. Right. So then the proceeds could actually go to this couple, the squatters. If there's an action to quiet title and the court determines that they have appropriately adverse possessed the property. Yes. That seems morally wrong. <laughs> That's exactly what I said in property class 20 years ago. But hey, that's the law. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, Will, you've outdone yourself with a Christmas crime story for us. Yeah. Ho, yeah, ho, ho. We'll, yeah. Ho, ho, ho. We'll see what happens. But that will do it. Um, yeah. I, I won't see you again until the new year. So uh, no. have a happy have a happy rest of of 2023 everybody looking forward to 2024 um and thank you to all of our viewers and listeners uh we love to hear from you you can leave your comments over on youtube and on our youtube community page we're also on facebook instagram twitter all the works thank you so much and have a happy holidays everybody bye merry christmas will wow it is the end of the year for us oh my goodness what a year this has been gerald you know when we look at all these huge criminal cases, which we have covered this year, and you've been a part of as well, joining us 
it's been um it's been an immense year of challenging the criminal justice system um as we always discuss what does justice look like um I know that you are connected and working on a very high profile criminal and civil case. Um, the multiple cases against um, singer R. Kelly. What's what's the latest on that and what's happening in the next year for you? Well, the latest is Mr. Kelly is appealing. You know, I do represent some of the individuals uh, that were in the trial. And I represent a family who's trying to reunite with their daughter. Uh, so we're still in the process of doing all that. We'll watch the appeals. Um, but mainly that case is pretty much over. Um, they've sued him civilly and he's been convicted of multiple uh, counts in multiple jurisdictions. And so he's serving his sentence. Uh, but we will continue to work with our clients to, to seek justice and, and to make sure that uh, a young lady is reunited with her family. Mm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Gerald, where can people follow you? Uh, I know a lot of times you have updates or you have commentary on cases and things going on in the courts. Where can people find you? You can find me on all social media platforms at Attorney Griggs, A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-G-R-I-G-G-S on all platforms, uh, on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and YouTube. And, you know, hopefully I'll be back on uh, the platform here uh, discussing all the issues in crime. 2024 is going to be a big year for big cases. Yes. And so need to stay tuned here uh, because they do the best job of covering those cases. Oh, thanks, Gerald. We appreciate that. We are always so blessed to have you on. Um, you know, the, the joke every time that uh, Gerald's going to be on that we're all asking, and some of you may get this joke, and for those who don't, you'll understand, is like, is Gerald in a moving car and wearing a seatbelt? Because one time, I don't can't remember if it was last year or the year before, you were scheduled to, you know, um, host the podcast with me. And you were in between two court cases and you were literally in a moving car. And even though you had like used your office background virtually behind <laughs> you, you still had a giant seatbelt. <laughs> So I was still I was still abiding by the rules of the road here in Georgia. But yes, I was in between courthouses between uh, Atlanta and Brunswick. So, yeah, you never can tell where I'm going to be, but I'm always going to be where justice is. <laughs> but it was just this is so funny that you managed to get, you know, a signal on your cell phone with your seatbelt on in a most unusual position, because, you know, when you're in a car, you yeah. can't like sit completely up. Exactly. And, and we and every once in a while we would lose the signal and you'd have to pull over into a parking lot. Yeah, it was it was really hilarious. Um, but that's <laughs> that's part of being a trial attorney. You have to be on your feet and always moving. Oh, my gosh. So you are absolutely a favorite of ours at all. At all costs, you managed to get on the podcast. And so we're that's why that's our joke is Gerald in a moving car. And does he have his seatbelt on? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wishing you the merriest of Christmases, the happiest of holidays and truly a safe and healthy uh, new year. It's uh, been an extraordinary year and next year proves to be another extraordinary one, but I hope that we can all keep and find our compassion for ourselves and one another and one another. And um, you know, through this kindness, hopefully we can all get through this. Um, you can find me on all Instagram and social media at Anna G News, Anna with one N. You can find this episode, all our episodes, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to YouTube, our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next year, <laughs> until next year, although we have a few special podcasts for you that we pre-recorded for the holidays. But until next year, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime.